competitive 40k network presents art of war art of war strategy and tactics discussions with the best players on the planet on the planet with your host paul murphy and expert coach nick nanavati Hey everybody, welcome to the Art of War podcast. My name is Paul Murphy, your host. I'm joined by Nick Naravati. What's up everyone? It's so good to be back. This is such an exciting week for us. We're going to be talking about the ATC this past weekend. Art of War took home the championship. Oh yeah, it was. It's It, it was an awesome weekend. I'm so proud of the team. So good to have the whole team together in one spot playing 40k with your friends. That's really what it's all about. And to have us... Win the whole thing felt really awesome. Over the course of this episode, we're going to be talking about our love for team tournaments and and how you prepare for them. We're also going to be talking to some of the players from the team, uh, from the Art of War crew, and talk about their experiences and maybe how you know what they would normally do might have changed for the team environment. First up, Richard Siegler. Hey, Paul. How you doing? I'm glad to be back again. I know. Welcome back. Who knew that we would have something to talk about so soon after the last broadcast? Yeah, not long ago, we were on talking about the Necrons and how they got from Zero to Hero with the Nephilim packet. We wanted to get them on because it had been a while and they still hadn't won any tournaments, but we figured maybe on they're on the horizon. And would you look at that? How about it, Nick? The list that I talked about, guess what? It performed spectacularly. You brought the same list that you talked about on our podcast just the other episode ago. Yeah, there might have been some small details changes but the core concept the two flyers two katan silent king just being the absolute man that he is it was amazing that's awesome let's let's talk about that as far as the the what the list composition was and then how the team environment changes things so in the atc environment many other team like tournaments around the world is there's this whole concept of pairing and matching and priority on tables and getting points for the team keeping the margins tight there's there's all kind of things that you now have to juggle that are a little bit different than just showing up and trying to win a game of warhammer absolutely through this episode we're going to guide you through what our different team players took and what roles they filled on their team and then in part two because remember this is part one of our two-part conversation we're going to be talking about the team strategy yeah and, and but team tournament strategy also, you know, so maybe not just applying to the ATC, but if, you know, the the various amazing team tournaments that are all around the world, we're going to get into the real nitty gritty of it in the second part of this conference. Well, by the time we finish this, it might be like the fourth part of that, but the subscriber only episode, we're going to get real deep into the preparedness and tactics of a team tournament. So if you have not uh, chosen to join us there, yeah, you, you might want to get into there for this episode, especially since team tournaments are freaking amazing. They're the best way to play 40K. Right, Mr. Siegs? Absolutely. It is by far the most fun, especially when you have Nick on your team. He's spilling water all over the place. He's almost slipping in during his games. It's just a ball of fun. Wearing socks. <laughs> Not where you want to be with Tanless. But let's talk about Necrons. You know, going into day two, I think a smooth 80% of the best generals, points-wise, there were playing Necrons. The most handsome generals, too, I've heard. I don't know about that. <laughs> Independently, of course. Dashing. Dashing generals. No, but Necrons were a force there. When you're looking at the battle point leaderboards, which is only so telling in a team environment because the pairings process very much skews that. But a lot of Necrons pulling up the huge point scores on the top tables of the teams. Yeah, Necrons actually might be the strongest faction in teams, specifically because they have very, very they have a couple very difficult matchups, 
And in a team pairing environment, it's actually quite easy to avoid those specific matchups, although Nick found a way to pair me into one of them, oh, regardless. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it, if you avoid those matchups, Necrons have such a great game into most armies because they can rack up so many points in those first three, four turns that even if their opponent killed most of the, most of the Necron army, you've still scored most of your points. Sisters of Battle are a stronger army, in my opinion, and the win rates from the past week kind of bore that out. But I think they have less worse matchups than Necrons, and so they don't care as much about the pairing process. So uh, did you have like a specific role with your Necrons on the team? Yeah, I definitely did. So going in, I typically prefer playing all comers lists. I design my Necron list to focus more on damage and be able to, with the minimum amount of units, so I can't make any mistakes with them because I don't have a lot of obsec coming into the middle of the board. I have very specific units for specific turns. And so just enough mission playing, and then the rest of the list is damage. Silent King, Double Doom Scythe, and Double Catan. And I try and cripple my opponent in the first couple turns, and then I just score my points easy. I get to that, you know, 90 or so points, and done. So... How, what is this list particularly good into? Well, I designed it so it's very good into those early defender lists like Sisters of Battle, Aldari, that just want to kind of hide behind terrain, do the bare minimum, don't take a lot of damage early, and then come out late game, overwhelm you, and then finish off their points. Well, guess what? Double Sky of Falling Stars from the Catan forces action on the side of that opponent. And I actually got to play against a couple Eldar players. And pretty much regardless of what opponent I played, the threat of, of Sky of Falling Stars and the board control and secondary pressure that I put on my opponent meant that I was always, I always I finally felt like I was always in the driver's seat with Necrons. This was an army that was at the mercy of other armies for the longest time. Now the new Nephilim update with the secondaries, the points drops, it feels like Necrons are a legitimate 9th edition army. And I got to force the pace of the game onto my opponent, put them in uncomfortable positions, and then pick apart the mistakes that they made. And I just love that style, and I think Necrons do it amazingly well now. Can you talk about the tweaks that you might have made since the last time we heard about on the, you know, go back and listen to that episode, anybody who's not already heard it, but some tweaks that you made specifically. And then also discuss, was it specifically for the team environment, or is this just the natural evolution of the list? So the list itself um, is led by a Chronomancer and a Technomancer. And then I have no troops here. It's an Outrider and a Vanguard. I had the Immortals in the previous version, and by golly, are they one of the worst units in the game. I just cannot abide by paying 80 points for that unit. It is just, it's just abysmal. So I see a lot of people on the internet being like, Immortals are awesome. Uh, they're not awesome. I'll tell you that. I, trust <laughs> me on that one. They are not for 80 points. So I was like, cut this out. I can just get more mission play, and I can upgrade my Transcendent Catan to the name Catan, which, in my opinion, have some very good benefits in a team environment. So I went ahead. Uh, the rest of the list is two Scorpic units, each five men. There's two Plasma Sites to follow them around. There's the Deceiver, and the Deceiver is important because he gets to choose three Necron units to redeploy. And this is particularly powerful because it's not dynasty locked, and it's not locked to core units. So you can choose the Silent King, you can choose the Catan themselves, and you can choose the Flyers. So to, you can, instead of just redeploying them, if you end up going second against a lot of guns, you just put them straight into reserve, and then they come down and near the Silent King in a future turn and still get to do their beta strike. Did you ever put the Silent King in reserve? I didn't. I never put the Silent King in reserve, but I did put the Flyers in reserve because they're aircraft and can be shot across the board. So I definitely did that, and there were a couple matchups where I was playing against long-range guns, and it was very helpful to not only force them to continue screening, but on top of that to also have to worry about where these Flyers were going to come in. So that was very useful. Uh, two Doom Sites, like I mentioned. The second Catan is the Void Dragon. I brought him because... 
I mentioned that in the last podcast episode, knights are a particularly tricky matchup for Necrons because their five models count as obsec on the little knights and they can do a lot of damage in shooting and pick up Necrons from afar and Necrons don't have the best long range shooting. I felt like the Void Dragon was that nice midfield piece to keep the knight players honest and more defensive and that'll let me score my points so they're not getting angles into my deployment zone. So I brought the Void Dragon here. Um, so I, I definitely built an all comers list, but I built in a couple tech choices that um, maybe you could probably spend a few less points on Catan here and go to Transcendence and get a couple extra resources, and that'd be perfectly fine for a singles event. But, I mean, with the CP starvation, essentially, that we're seeing out there, you know, effects like the redeploy. Effectively, for Necrons, you're paying 70-odd points for the redeploy because Transcendence 230, and the Deceiver isn't much better in terms of casting powers, but he does come with that redeploy, and he's 300 points, so... It's pricey to pay 70 points for redeploy, but if you're bringing the Flyers, I think it's absolutely essential, and that kind of bore out in the games that I played. It was an amazing tech choice to have, and it meant that if I ever got paired into Tower, something that can do a lot of damage early, I could just put my shooting straight into reserve and pre prevent them from damaging the, the best elements of my army, because it's essentially Catan that would stand out on objectives, get me points, and then I beta strike their own shooting units when I come in from reserve. So it's just a nice safety tech choice for Necrons, in my opinion. One of the strongest things about Necrons is that they have um, built-in secondaries that, from their codex that just score points, score points, score points oh, all yeah. throughout the game. That makes them a really powerful tool on a team format because it's not simply just whether or not you won your game, it's the margin of victory. Having to beat your opponent by 50 points is better than beating them by 20. Or even keeping a game that's a loss close is really important. So do you find Necrons are better in human environment for just keeping every game close no matter what and blunting your opponent's stronger armies? Or do you think they are a monster of their own right that should be destroying your opponents and getting huge differentials of their own? I think, I think you can do both. I think it really depends on how you build the list. I built my particular list to get the big differentials. I was going for the 20 in most of the games. There was only one where I actively tried to just keep it close because it was a tougher matchup. It was against Tyranids. So in that one, I played Cagier. I just got my points, and I wasn't worrying as much about the differential. I just wanted to get the win on the board. And I ended up getting a 14-6, which I think was quite good, but it wasn't the 20-0. In most of the other matchups where I was put into, like Eldar, for instance, I was going for that 20-0. And my list has the power to alpha strike with the speed of the flyers, the redeploy, and the amount of obsec pressure I can put on my opponent. It was uh, you know, very nice to finally be like, Necrons are just tabling armies out here. Now, if you wanted to go that other approach, you could. You probably drop the flyers, maybe you go down to one Catan, or you just go to double Transcendent, and you just build in more mission plank, third unit of Scorpex, maybe some units of Wraiths. Ophidian Destroyers, that type of thing, and you just flood the board. And I think that works perfectly fine for keeping every game close because every single unit in that list pretty much just trying to score points. And Nick walked over to my table round five, bottom of turn one, and he was like, how's this one going? And I, and I just told him, I got 13 secondary points, turn one, and I'm going to do it again next turn. <laughs> and I, by golly, did I. Oh, yeah. So, you know, everything's going gravy when seeks to score points. Either. No, seriously, at the end of uh, over the battle round three, I had almost maxed my score because I got two 12s in a row on primary oh and the bonus primary. So I just... I was floating in points. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I just, I'm, I'm going to walk my army off the objectives because I don't even need them anymore. That's crazy. Oh, rough. To save that my is... resources. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned that the potential bad matchup that you got paired into. What, what were the categories of, of bad matchups, if you don't mind, you know, maybe listing them all in order again? Yeah, so... The 
Uh, and then how do you, how do you I didn't end up getting paired into knights, but that was one of the trickier ones. Because I brought the Void Dragon, it was a question mark whether opponents were going to actually pair my army into knights, because, like I said, I could redeploy the two flyers and the Silent King, so they're not getting shot. They're going to come in and shoot something quite hard. And then I have the Void Dragon, who can, after knights are whittled down, I help finish them off with him. People just know that the Void Dragon does something against vehicles, and that's probably enough. He does a whole bunch of things. That was actually a whole point of uh, bringing him in our team list was like, even if he doesn't actually do that much for his vehicles because he moves eight, he has to actually get there to destroy them all. Um, he's a huge threat. Like the perception of what the Void Dragon could do might scare away the vehicles on their own. Yeah, his power goes to on a two-up. It does D6 against vehicles and it brackets them. Um, and then his, um, his staff, his, his combat weapon is flat three plus D three, and you can spend two CP to ignore invulns on him. So he could actually just pick up a knight in combat. And his gun is also better against vehicles. So he has a whole bunch of things. And then if he kills vehicles up to three per phase on a two up, he can heal a number of wounds. So that is just a very powerful thing to have. Cause it means if you whittle down three different armager class knights, and then the void dragon finishes them off, he's just all, the, all of a sudden back to full or above his wounds cap. Yeah, the t the tech piece I think definitely makes sense, and, and then you know we'll talk about that how the pairings work in just a minute or two. But what are, what are the other what you you might consider some suboptimal? Uh, Tyranids. Tyranids are an army that spams mortal wounds, and Necrons don't particularly like that. Necron uh, Tyranids do damage in all three of the important phases: the shooting, the uh, uh, psychic, and then the combat phase. So they can just pick up a katan in one turn if you're not uh, playing very carefully. And then on top of that, they have uh, often a hive tyrant that has wings and has Reaper of Obliterax, and it ignores wounds caps. So that thing can just swing in, pick up the Catan, and then overrun behind a Ruin. That's just a nightmare to deal with. It's not particularly easy to do, um, and I think Tyranids are probably the hardest matchup for Necrons, uh, because their defense, especially the Leviathan build, is kind of hard to get around, especially from range. That's really interesting, because Tyranids are an army that lost a lot of their secondary gameplay with the new Nephilim pack, and now they struggle to actually score tons of points, even though they do still do awesome work in the offense when defense part of the game. Necrons, though, score all their points. Yeah, that's the thing, is against Tyranids, it's a race against the clock. Of This Tyranid army is going to do a lot of damage to you very quickly if it gets close to you. You need to get all the points on the board as soon as possible, so that even if you end up losing the game, it's not by much. Um, to transition a little bit, what did you think about the team comp overall? I know you played Necrons, but whatever, what did everyone else bring? So we had uh, Mr. Nick Nanavati on Triple Tantalus Drukari. That's the sauce. Just something that nobody in the world was expecting for us to bust out, but we've had those bad boys in the closet for a long, long time, and we finally got um, some hobby work done on them. So it was fun to bring them out. And then we had Jack on Blood Angels. And Blood Angels are one of the best um, Armor of Contempt armies. The, probably the second best after Sisters, in my mind. So great army, very aggressive, plays Jack's uh, style. Then we had John on Sisters, and John just loves the Sisters. I mean, they, something about Morvan Wall just walking up the table, <laughs> killing every night in existence, which happened during the tournament. That's, that's amazing to watch. And then we had a good friend, Mr. Brad Chester. He was hanging out with his Eldari, and uh, I, we were very fortunate that I helped him with his Eldar list because he was going to take a subpar one, and I got him to include Karandris, and Karandris standing up in his game against Tog Tom Ogden's Tau in round one was a big deal for him winning that game. There might have been a cameo of Brad Chester's earlier iterations of Eldar and Fix My List yesterday, so check that out over on YouTube if you haven't yet. Yeah, it, it wasn't great, and we at The Art of War have helped him, okay? We even help our friends. <laughs> we even help Brad. <laughs> So with the teams, let's talk about how things get paired up. So both teams roll up to the table. 
uh, and spend a few moments reviewing the other teams list if they haven't already, and then the pairing process begins. Let's let's briefly describe how that goes down. So basically, there's going to be a five-person team versus five-person team at ATC, and each player plays a different faction. So you can't have like Blood Angels and Dark Angels on the same team. They'll both count as Space Marines. You, you could. Never mind. You <laughs> at ATC, you can. At WTC, you can. Ah, oh, the rules. There's formats. You know. <laughs> um, so, but you have to play five different factions, and apparently Blood Angels and Dark Angels are two different ones. So what happens is you and your team, your opponent's team, simultaneously put out their first defender. So... Out of my five armies, I'll put out one. Out of, my, out of my opponent's five armies, they'll put out one. And then I'll select two of my players, two of my remaining four players of four armies, and have them attack the opponent's defender army, the one they put out. And vice versa, they'll take two of their remaining four armies and attack the one that I put out. And then the defender, the person who was put out initially, they'll select which of the two attackers they actually want to play, which one they refuse to play, and send back into the pile of remaining armies that can keep going. And you basically rinse and repeat this process of put one person out there, respond with two, refuse one, all the way down until you're out of armies. And through that process, it's called the pairings process, you end up with who's playing who, and then players alternate selecting tables. So it's always a race against who wants the heavy tables, who wants the light tables. That's a whole strategy as well. It's a really cool process. So where did you go up in the process, in that, that whole slide of where armies might go? It really depended on which team we were playing against, but primarily I was uh, used as an attacker um, to try and either trap. We had a couple armies that were very good into particular ones. So, for instance, if we were playing against Thousand Sons Army, we were we wanted to save John and Jack, two aggressive, hard-hitting melee armies, to pair down into the Thousand Sons if they are used as a defender. Now, for instance, if they were defending with Sisters, which happened in our final round. Nick and I were waiting for this moment. Okay, both of our lists are amazing against sisters, and uh, not if you ask Brad. That's why we don't ask him. So great into sisters, triple tantalus, and uh, with the ignore cover, that's the important part. And then my uh, double sky falling stars Catan build, and they put out sisters, and we were like, boom, me and Nick, and then they had to choose which of those tough matchups they wanted to take. And this happened a couple times because our opponents often had Eldar. And both of our armies are actually very good into Eldar as well. And so oftentimes when you think about what are the top armies in the game and which ones should you be teching for specifically, if you can have two lists that you can put down against Eldar or Sisters that are actually quite good into them, you can kind of trap one of their better players or their defenders and force them to play into a tough matchup and just get a win on the board almost immediately. And that's, we pretty much trapped most teams with some sort of combination. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I do think the pairings part of the team's environment is one of the most fun and engaging parts, and it's definitely the part that can win or lose you rounds before they even begin. So it's important to learn that. We actually teach some pairing stuff in the war room. If you're interested in that type of team environment, we got tons of content there for you as well. Mr. Siegs, I have one more question for you before I let you go. In addition to all of the exciting things that happens with the games and the pairings and the matchups and the armies, there's so much other stuff that goes on at the 40k turns outside the scenes, you know. The, the group dinners and the fun with your team and the road trip up and all that stuff. What was your favorite part of this journey? So I have a reputation in the community, not only for being an awesome gamer, right? Okay, everybody knows that, right? <laughs> now, I have a reputation for being a very uh, kind of like dry and very serious at the table and just... A robot. Even. A robot yeah. sometimes. And so there are various people throughout the tournament who came up to my games or even my opponents, um, like the round that we played against uh, Team Texas, 
that were just trying to get me to laugh and uh, have fun. So <laughs> that was that was really really fun because they'd just come over and start doing you know making jokes and and doing silly things, and that was a lot of fun. Did you laugh? I did laugh. I did really? laugh. Yeah, I did. Proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I it also helped that I was hyped about the Silent King doing Silent King things. That's good. Yeah. Well, uh, look, uh, one one hundred percent of the deceivers at the tournament won one hundred percent of their games. Was I the only one running the deceiver? No. No. Uh, Red Power. Everybody who ran the Deceiver yeah. won. Wow, that's impressive. Now, yeah. I'll say that the Deceiver has the worst named Catan power, Cosmic Insanity, and there's only one game where I actually kept it and did the cast, and it failed. <laughs> but I, I tried one time. Sounds insane. <laughs> As we talked about, some, some other advantages uh, there. But it's, you know, again, important to, to look at, I think, in the, in the team environment. You know, looking back, you know, through your games throughout the course of the weekend, would you have made any changes to your list further? Not at all. Honestly, it played perfectly. It was even better than I imagined it when I played the one game and uh, designed the list. It played perfectly into uh, the meta at ATC. So I, I really enjoyed playing it, and it was a ton of fun. It's fun playing a Necron army that scares people with its damage and also plays the mission supremely well. It's not just one of those, which I think is a weakness in a lot of Necron armies. It just, just focuses on one thing. I think with the update to command protocols and the points drops, Necrons can actually do quite a bit more. Richard, always great to get your insight. Uh, we're going to talk to some other members of the team, as, and then later on, we're going to take a, a brief break and then get into that that part two of the episode where we talk about all the pairings and and the the build up to the event. You don't want to miss it. We'll see y'all soon. Hang tight. Hello, everyone. Welcome back for that brief pause we just had in this conversation. Now we're joined by Mr. Jack Harpster. Hello, 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 Jack. Man, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be on. Of course, Nick's here as well. Yeah, can't mm. forget Nick. <laughs> I'm not going to, man. Look, this is this is this is cool. Team tournaments, uh, you know, like we covered in the first segment, are just some of the most electrifying Warhammer you can ever do. But it's not the same as preparing for a singles event. I mean, sure, you need to know your rules, you need to know the game, you know, like we like we talked about. But you know, getting into the mindset of the individual players that would be a cool exercise to do. And Jack, you know, congratulations on the win. Thank you. Thank you. It's a team effort, but we all performed our part. Even Nick tantalizing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, no spoilers. We'll get to all that. Uh, but let's let's talk about what your part was. What did you take? And then in this team environment, did in the early phase of you know, like list design, did that influence what you took because of maybe what you what position you thought you might be put in often on the on the team itself? So I ended up taking uh, Blood Angels. It's an army I know pretty well. It's in a good position right now. It's a decent team's army. So we thought that would be a good one to run. And we were skewing a little more towards we would take a whole bunch of singles armies and just try to win a bunch of games that way and try to not be weak to any one particular strategy. So I teched my Blood Angels a little more towards being a singles army with having Kodiaz and Mephiston in there to be warp, uh, warp Ritual Caster and a backup Warp Ritual Caster, which I feel like you really need. And that took some of the offense out of the list, but it meant that I can sit back and just score my primary. So it's a very reliable, very reliable list. Were we using you in any specific way during the team's pairings, attacker, defender, that kind of thing? Uh, I was a little more of an attacker, but in general, no. I would just look to get a matchup that wasn't too bad and score a decent number of points. Occasionally, occasionally you... Uh, you did gift me with some decent pairings, uh, specifically early. I got a good one into Admech, and then I got a good one into uh, an all-Iron Hands gun line. But uh, generally, I ran in headfirst into Tyr- uh, not Tyranids, headfirst into Necrons, and just tried to keep this game as even as possible. Um, I believe I got a 15, a 13, and a draw, a 10 on the last draft. 
So that 0 to 20 scale that you hear Jack talking about is it's kind of when you take your opponent's score 0 to 100 and compare it to your opponent to your score 0 to 100 and convert it to that 0 to 20 scale. That's a very team thing. That's the thing you do in team format. So that's what often how you'll hear players talking about it. Yeah, it's based on the differential between the two scores. And then 10 is if your scores are within five points of each other. And then for every five point increment after that, you gain a point and they lose a point. So 11 to 9 is a very close game that you won by slightly more than five. And whereas a 19 to 1 is a game you blew them out by 45 plus points. Yeah, so the, it's not just simply whether or not you won your games, but the margin by which you won your games. Absolutely. And that's the biggest thing about teams is that it's not just do we win our games. Although if you win four games in a round, uh, you do win the round, which we did in every single round. We won at least four games. So we didn't even have to go to the scoreboard. But when we do go to the scoreboard, you have to win by 10 points combined more than your opponent. You have to score at least 55 of those five differential scores combined. Uh, there are teams actually who are fully capable of going two and three yet still winning the round. It's pretty cool. Absolutely. Uh, with high scores, and we'll talk about those in, in other segments. You mentioned you felt like you had a good matchup going into AdMech. Why did you think that? Well, the particular version, uh, this was against Death or Glory, the particular version didn't have a lot to counteract uh, good saves with Armor of Contempt and Cover, so a lot of AP1, a lot of AP2, and uh, folded very quickly as soon as I hit them in combat. So I put my opponent on the defensive right away, and then when he made some plays to try to even it up, I capitalized on that and took the game. So the few things going into the pairings and what have you is, is this was player place terrain, preset missions, but player place terrain. Tell me your approach to that. Like going into an Adeptus Mechanicus fight with Angels, I mean, obviously a lot of good good armor saves as well, but a lot leads up to that to, again, try to skew things into your favor. How did you approach the table? What were you hoping for? Then what did you do? Yeah, so Blood Angels are pretty durable. I mean, they got they have a lot of two-up armor saves, and they got Armor of Contempt, so they're more durable than they were before. But the damage in the game has also gone up since the last time I played Blood Angels, which meant they felt about as durable as they did back then. So you still don't want to just get shot. You can tank it better, but you still don't want to. Your opponent can still pick up a lot of your models. So I tended to want to go on heavier boards. I'm mostly close combat, so I want to stick to heavier boards. The only time I landed on one of the lighter boards was when we could afford to. I was in the Blood Angel Mirror. So other than that, I was attempting to hit some of the heavier tables with a lot more L-shaped ruins, things you couldn't see through on the bottom. They had an interesting rule where you could put terrain pieces as close as you wanted as long as the walls weren't were four inches apart, which meant you could construct these long blocking uh, kind of great walls of China of uh, obscuring ruins, and it made on some of the boards it made it very difficult to see anything. So I would like to li- I like to live on those boards and just not be shot. And, you, and how do you engineer that? Because this is one of those uh, tournaments to where there are I, I get a disparity between terrain on each table, where there are a couple of heavy ones, a couple of uh, I guess medium ones, and then a light one. And, and who That's picks which table? It's not that they're just like are sparse because they didn't have a big enough terrain box. Their some tables are meant to be light, some tables are meant to be heavy as a as a feature of the round. Because uh, some armies favor terrain heavy boards, while some armies will favor lighter tables. Yeah, absolutely factors into it. But when you put an army up and uh, may be determined by what tables are left, you know, or how many tables are available to choose from for certain army builds. So, did that factor into when the Blood Angels went up in the rotation? Absolutely. Um, none of us really wanted to play into heavy shooting armies on light terrain, so we would try to 
either, which we never, we won the roll off for picking terrain one time. And that was when we took the light terrain board off the table as soon as possible. And the rest of us just lived in heavy terrain. That was also when Richard Siegler rolled the die. Uh, it's weird, right? Um, but other than that, we attempted to mitigate the light table with people who would score decently. So Siegs was on it, I believe, a couple times. I'm not 100% sure, but it, it did factor into our plan a lot, trying to neutralize a shooting army on a light board. Because a shooting army on a light board is terrifying. It'll just blow you up. It doesn't matter how you play, just you're dead. So you have to neutralize that and make sure that you put a, an army that can live on those boards into that matchup. So was that, was that your job, being an army that can fight against a shooting army on a light board, or were you something else? I was more, I lived on the dense boards, and I'd be more of a predator there once we got the light boards out of the way. That was when you teed me up and sent me into the more heavy cover boards, and I would take on things like, things, things that wanted to live there and just score all their points, Some, so stuff like Necrons, you put me into the Blood Angel Mirror as well, and generally I was just there to take what fell to me, I wasn't I wasn't like geared to hunt one particular thing. I was just a generalist army, and they, you'd put me up against generalist opponents. Were there things you maybe didn't want to play against, or did you feel really comfortable against everything? I felt very comfortable against a lot of things. Uh, I didn't really want to play against um, against Tau on light boards. Very, very uncomfortable with that. Anything else, I felt pretty good. Sisters? Um, sisters, I felt... Sisters would be bad, yes. Sisters were, I think, one I was looking to avoid, but we had an interesting double attack into Sisters if they put Sisters down as a defender. What does that mean? Can you explain that a bit? So when you, you put down a defending list, so say Sisters, then us on the other end would have to put two lists into it, which the Sisters player would pick one to play against, the other one would go back. So what you want to do is you want to have two lists that can attack a good defender, so that they don't just pick the one they're good into and avoid the one they're bad into. And into Sisters, we had your Drukari. Time for the Tantalus. Time for the Triple Tantalus. And we had uh, Richard Siegler's Necrons that had a lot of tech pieces that people might not be aware of. Be very good in the Sisters. So we were set up to counter like, ob like really good defending lists. So really good defenders would be Eldar, Sisters, anything that wanted to pick a board, sit there and score a lot of points and negate your offense. We had you two ready to just go into them and, and uh, hurt them. Interesting. Yep. Sounds like we had a plan. Almost. And we had uh, Mr. Chad Brester, Bradley Chester, set up to just go right in as our first defender, take whatever we didn't like, take it right off the board. He would still play. He'd still do okay because he never – he went 6-0, and and he went 6-0 and at LVTT, and we kept putting him into just – and nothing but bad matchups. He'd just be like, here, which of these do you want to play? He's like, which is better for the team? We're like, I – I don't know. He's like, I, I don't care. Just put me into whatever. So we put him into whatever, and he always came back with the win. He just refuses to go in the dumpster. He doesn't yep. know how. There's a strategy <laughs> called taking out the trash that Nick is fond of. You find whoever's not as good in the in, in teams as, like, whoever is the worst in that particular team-on-team -team matchup, and you just throw them under the bus to neutralize your opponent's strongest list. Not to say, like, the skill of the player in some degrading way. More like, who, which individual army is least useful in the pairings matrix versus the opponent's team. Yep, and then you just toss them clean under the bus. They get hit by your opponent's strongest army. And it neutralizes them because you, you've thrown your weakest list into their strongest list. And that means you're going to crush the rest of the matchups. And Brad has been our trash for quite a while, and he is still undefeated. <laughs> he refuses to go in the dumpster. And uh, yeah, that's, that's basically how it worked. The dude, just, the dude just went off. Couldn't be stopped.
Yeah, pretty good. Well, focusing back on on the list you took with the psychic secondaries or the option of taking psychic secondaries, how much of a factor was that in your game? Did you did you default to taking them just because you had them, or did it actually play out to where those were a requirement to to that percentage of your points? So I actually bounced back and forth. I, I took them a decent amount, uh, even sometimes when I shouldn't. I took them against Necrons, and the Silent King denied it every single time he could. Like he he never failed to deny the power. Not once. So I took War Ritual and com- twice against Necrons and combined scored a six on it, which was unfortunate. So perhaps that was ill-advised. But otherwise, it's just a very solid secondary. You're going to score your points, and I would take it in everything else. I didn't take it into Blood Angels just because I don't want to have to stick them in the center of the board. I want to kind of stay 24 inches away and rotate around their army, and then we each throw missiles at each other. So you don't want them versus Necrons. I presume similarly you wouldn't want them versus Sisters. and You evidently didn't want them versus players, but they're great. They're good. Okay. They're good. All right. Well, so maybe, uh, I mean, obviously, you you can look at the scoreboard and, you know, say the the, the points speak for themselves. uh, But looking back with the knowledge that you have today, would you have still taken those choices for that reason. I think so. Our strategy was to take four singles lists and then Nick's weird abomination I'll tell you about. Um, our strategy was to take four singles lists and that's what we did. And uh, that's that plan worked out really well. So I would do it again. Yeah, I mean, no, fair enough. I mean, if it works, it works. Uh, did you ever find yourself in situations where Cody has, was that, that choice, I assume there was a points consideration there or was it a slot consideration for Agents of the Imperium? So Cody has, I think, is really good right now. I think he's I think he's very undervalued at the moment, and I think people will catch on. He's very good. People start out with less CP. So there is an auto loss into Blood Angels if during the middle of the game you find yourself unable to interrupt. They'll just hit you with every unit in their army, your army gets tabled, it doesn't go well. So Kodiaz just makes it so much worse because you have to leave up three CP at all times. And it's not just interrupt, it's also desperate breakout. So against shooting armies, if they drop below, they go down to one on their turn, or they go down to one in their turn, then in my turn, I just charge them my whole army, deny the interrupt with uh, Kodiaz, with his ability to make a, pa- make a stratagem cost one more once, and if your opponent is unable to pay for it, they don't get their stratagem. That is a very strong ability when everyone starts so low on resources and tends to coast along at two or three over the entire game. If they go below three, stops your interrupt. If they go down to zero on their turn, go up to one on mine, go up to two on theirs, if they want a desperate breakout, guess what? You can't. Did this come up at all in your games, or is this just like theoretical, this could be awesome? It did come up. Uh, it made my opponents play really weird a lot of the time, where they didn't go for plays that cost CP, because they had to leave up uh, interrupts, which is a value in and of itself. It's probably worth a 35 over a regular Inquisitor. But also, it did. It, it got my uh, Admech opponent really hard. He, he knew it was coming. This was not a gotcha like, ah, you didn't know this was here, but it, it just ruined him. He had three CP, and he was looking to advance, auto-advance six inches and advance and charge. It's one CP to auto-advance six, two CP to advance and charge. He has three CP. So he starts to go for it, and I tell him, like, listen, hey, that's not going to work. Like, you're going to get to the charge phase. I'm going to say no. Like, it's not going to work. Don't go for it. So he goes, oh, okay, okay. And then he rolls the advance because he needed to leave the one up. He gets a three. Suddenly the charge he wants is very long. He has to go for a shorter one. So he spends the two CP. He goes down to one. And he fails the charge. And now he goes to do the reroll, and he's like, you're going to stop me if I try this, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah. Oh, man. That's brutal. (laughs) 
Yeah, so I stopped his reroll, and then I heroiced into something that was trying to contest the objective with the Sangard, killed it, got like an extra nine inches of movement, charged into the center of his castle, and that was the 20 right <laughs> there. Good old-fashioned agents of Vecodia is over there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it does feel like some of, some of the more powerful Blood Angel stratagems are basically inexpensive in the world that we live in now. Uh, even when there are fewer of them, it feels like you're getting more value out of those uh, inexpensive yeah. stratagems. They have quite a few good stratagems. Um, the pregame move on Death Company you use almost every game. Forlorn Fury. Forlorn Fury. Is what you're looking uh, I actually used Red Rampage for the first time. It's a one CP. Your entire army gets sixes to wound or an additional AP in combat for a turn. And it's one CP for your whole army, which uh, I used it for the first time against Iron Hands when they have a lot of vehicles uh, two up. I'm like, nah. Sixes mm-hmm. to wound are going to be an extra AP. We're going to force those wounds through. That one was fun. Uh, the five up feel no pain. I forget, uh, I forget what it's called. Five up feel no pain on Death Company for one CP. Also incredibly strong. The six inch heroic on Sangard. Amazing at controlling objectives, getting extra distance. All the overlapping heroics, if you space out your characters around your units, can really prevent your opponent from charging you because they charge you, character heroics in, and you use the most powerful strategy in the book, Angel's Sacrifice, to draw attacks away from your unit. Angel's Sacrifice is one CP. Anyone in engagement range of the character has to fight them. Yeah, so, the way that you check the engagement range, it goes up the models and the units. So you get basically a whole squad has to attack. Yeah, um, you can. You can generally pull half or more of the squad's attacks away from their intended target. And Sanguinary Guard are durable enough that half of the attacks or a quarter of the attacks are just not enough. And the Sanguinary Guard murder whatever unit just tried to kill them, get into a bunch of extra distance, go forward, maybe res a model out of it uh, with your Sanguinary Priest, get even more extra distance and charge something your opponent wasn't anticipating. The strats are very scary in, uh, in Blood Angels. Yeah, it Let's... seems like that. But one more question I wanted to ask, Jack, is... The, the, the part that goes unsung a lot about the 40k turns is what happens outside the tournaments. The, the talking and hanging out with the other teams, you're seeing people you haven't seen in a long time. And the whole weekend, what was your favorite thing that happened? Oh, um, well, we had Tundra Tactics over to our hotel room like right off, right off the bat, the, the day before the tournament kicked off. We had them over, and Nick has a, uh, a history with one of the people on that team, with Oliver Smith, about making bets with him. And unfortunately, Nick is not the best at betting um, at all. And Some he, could say I've had some bad luck over the years. Yeah, some bad luck. So <laughs> Nick, as he always does with Oliver, they get together and they kind of formulate a bet for the event. It's always um, well, for 100 bucks. Yeah. And it's always for 100 bucks. And Nick, you're... Before the event, you were what four and one on that? Yeah, I or got one and I, four. I, I, I have won one hundred dollars, and I've spent this man way too much money. Yes, uh, one and four in these bets, and he comes back and he's like, "All right, Oliver hands Oliver hands him both sides of the bet and allows Nick to pick whichever side he wants." So the bet was either Siegs and John would each go five and one, or they would do anything else. Yeah, as in any other record. Any other record, six and zero. Oh, one of them goes six and zero. Oh, one of them goes five and one. One of them goes six and zero. Oh, one of them goes three and three. Which somehow, um, and so Oliver presents these up and says, "You pick the one you want." And in classic, classic Nick tradition, he picks the wrong one. Of course, he picks. They will both go five and one exactly. So, hold on, hold on, hold on. All this is true. But last <laughs> year, I went to the Las Vegas teams with these boys. Very proud. And I bet same thing with Oliver. Hundred bucks. You know the drill. That my boys, John and Siegs, would go 6-0 because they're pretty good at this game. And they went a collective 9-3 and 
That's so, how teams work, baby. It's uh, That is how teams work. So you know what I was like? They're going to have some lumps this round. ATC isn't easy. Paul Murphy's there. So we're going to go 5-1 and one out here with these. And you know what? They were the only people on the team who went 6-0. Oh. that that team it is the the way this works out sometimes you you know you have to fall on your sword sometimes you've got to you take one for the team quite literally uh and it's so sometimes it isn't it's very it's even more impressive to have the records that you did uh over the course of the weekend well nick uh only lost fifty dollars net because he had a bet with also a fifty dollar bet with mr bradley chester as well saying that Nick would not be able to win four games. I tried really hard to do my damnedest not to win four games. But you know what? We got there. A little hedging there. No problems. <laughs> uh, so, so Brad said Nick's list is trash, which is clearly wrong. And he said that Nick would not win four games. In fact, if in anyone else, Brad said he would win zero. But because Nick is squirmy uh, in games or refuses to die... Uh, Nick would get three, but not four. And Nick very nearly was wrong about that. <laughs> I was able to get four wins. Brad was almost correct. In fact, we paired Nick paired himself into Tau. Which was going to be my third loss. That was going to be your third loss. He did it. He did it to himself. He's a selfless man. Selfless healer. Selfless healer almost. But, uh, I mean, you'll talk about that game, I'm well, sure. That was a great game. It was a great game. Very fun games right next to it. We'll unpack that. Back on the, uh, I guess, the command point, talking about the the thirst for them. Did you did you spend your pregame command points any differently than norm- you normally might because of the team environment? And, and what did you end up choosing? So I ended up taking um, Rites of War and Wrath of Ball on my Ancient uh, because Rites of War is obsec on everybody. That wins games. And Wrath of Ball makes everyone move two inches further. Movement wins games. Kind of a no-brainer. I took Selfless Healer and I took Teeth of Terra on my Sanguinary Priest. I love Selfless Healer because I res models constantly, and the threat of resing models means my opponent doesn't put chip damage into me. And I love Teeth of Terra because it turns him from a guy who couldn't punch his way out of a wet paper bag to a guy who's a serious threat in combat. So I love that, that relic. Because I swapped out a Chaplain for Mephiston, I took Heroic Bearing on Dante as his Warlord trait mm-hmm. because uh, I wanted a bigger aura of rerolls because I was lacking the rerolls to hit off the Chaplain. Other than that, I uh, spent my list... Spent my CP the way I normally would, getting those relics and warlord trades. Yeah, those are good choices, I think, for uh, for pregame stuff. Yeah, I would agree with that. Well, Jack, did you have a good time over the course of the weekend? Oh, absolutely. Team 40K is the best 40K, and I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully continuing it at WTC in uh, just a few short weeks. Well, great, man. Thanks for spending the time talking to us here. Uh, folks listening here, we're going to take another short break and then come back for another segment. So hold tight. You do not want to miss any m- amount of this team extravaganza. Hey everybody, we are back. This is going to be the last segment here in part one of this two-part episode. In addition to Mr. Mus- um, myself and Mr. Nick Nanavati, we have John Lennon. John, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Happy to be here. How are you? Yes, yeah, it's awesome. So you played Adeptus Oritas on the Art of War team. You know, obviously, people consider that like one of the lists to beat in the hands of a very capable player. Now, what were your thoughts going into this event? <laughs> Absolutely. So going in, um, I knew that uh, Sisters of Battle, and especially Bloody Rose, was in a really good spot. But I also knew that a lot of people were going to be kind of ready for it. Uh, it's definitely no secret that Sisters are one of the top dogs in the meta right now. 
So I knew that everyone was going to be aware of it. There's probably going to be a lot of other sisters lists there. And I figured that most teams would have a plan to go deal with a sister battle player. But uh, I figured that it's also a new thing in the meta. So a lot of people haven't had a lot of reps into it or a ton of practice with it. And I've been playing sisters for quite a while now. So I was hoping that a little bit of experience, you know, just playing that army over and over and over would give me a bit of an edge over the competition. One of the, the like reoccurring themes as we are talking about the team event is how you know you can include different tech in your list that you might not include in a singles list. Now, the list will be in the show notes, but is there something in there that, that maybe you specifically took because of this team environment and that you might have some influence into what your, your matchups or pairings might? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I tried to do was make sure that my list was uh, relatively strong into knights. Uh, both Imperial and Chaos Knights are a very popular team army, and they're also relatively popular in singles as well, so it, it does serve both purposes. But I was definitely trying to prepare myself to be able to kill big stuff, because there are things that traditional Sisters units like Zephyrm aren't very good into, and they're usually T8 on two legs. We definitely had, uh, you're in a position where you were our Tyranid player and our Sisters player, and unless someone wanted to learn a new army all of a sudden, we're only going to bring one. A lot of teams typically brought both because they're very strong factions. Did you find yourself strained at all, being both split in multiple directions here? Uh, also, similarly, you're our Knight player. Or did you find that Sisters were just the right fit for this team? Um, you know, I, I felt like Sisters were the, just the right fit, but I'll be honest, I was tempted by Tyranids. Uh, Tyranids and Sisters are definitely my two favorite armies to play. So, you know, it, it's I'm, I'm lucky that they're both very fun and very powerful to play right now, so it, it sucks that I could only play one, but uh, I think just because Sisters got that recent increase, you know, they've got a lot of fresh new you know builds to try out, uh, I think I was a little bit more excited about them, and I, I think that I made the right choice uh, going into the tournament. What makes you say that? Now, obviously, we did win, so that's pretty cool. But what? how do you determine if one army is the right fit for a team's composition versus another and why go with sisters? Yeah, so I look at it as being a matter of which one is going to be a more consistent army because, you know, the goal is not just to go win all your games. Obviously, that's a great way to win a tournament, but it's also in a team format to be a consistent scoring army because if I'm going to lose a game, I don't want to lose by much. I want to keep it close so that, you know, the team doesn't get punished harshly for my loss. And I felt like sisters were very consistent. Uh, the way that I like to play them and the way that their secondaries pan out, it's very easy for sisters to get a certain amount of points. And therefore, it's very hard for the enemy to just destroy them. So I thought that for the pairings process and making sure that, you know, I was going to deliver consistent results, taking a more reliable army where I could predict what was going to happen a little with a little more accuracy was going to be very helpful for the team. So with your sisters, did you what position did you play on the team? Because we talked a little bit earlier with Richard and Jack about attackers and defenders and different roles people can play. What was your purpose? Uh, you know, I, I think that my purpose was uh, just to be kind of the, the last man standing. Uh, it feels like, you know, there's attackers and then there's defenders. And then there's one or two lists that are there at the end that just get paired into each other by default. And that means that I have to be ready to play anything because we never know what in our opponent's team is going to fall to the bottom. You know, all, all the way that the pairings go, uh, of course, I would attack into some things. But then uh, I found that I was often getting refused and they were taking the other army. So, you know, almost my role in the team was to kind of funnel the enemy into a match we wanted. But then I was going to be left in the open and I was just going to kind of drift down to the bottom and I'd play the last team. I think that in... In our six rounds of pairings, I think I was the last army left in four of them. And wow. uh, that was just kind of fun, just watching myself 
just like cycle through the enemy teams as everyone kept saying, no, not the sisters, we'll take the other one. It, it was you, John. It was no one wants John. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was the sisters of Wolfenball. So a lot of teams, and I noticed this in our round six opponent in the finals, Team Tarzana's Bay, defended with their sisters first, really because they have a, an amazing points floor, as we call it. Their ability to score points, kind of irrespective of their opponent's game plan, is really high. So even if things go totally sideways for your sisters, you can still put up a really good score. And even though I attacked the sisters in that round with my Drukari, I was only able to win 14-6 instead of like a 20-0 blowout or something. We didn't use your sisters like that in this team composition. We used you, like you said, to attack stuff, and then you kind of fell to the bottom. What do you think about that alternative use of sisters? Uh, I mean, sisters are, are so variable as an army, they can fit almost any role. Uh, they're a great defender for sure. I think in our team, it didn't make much sense to use me as a defender because we had such great defenders like, you know, Brad or Richard, you know, with their Eldar and Necron armies. Uh, I, I think sisters can, you know, wear either shoe in that case, but I think that sisters can also be played, and this is the way I like to play them, as an army that's not just trying to be safe. They've got the fallback plan of if things start to go poorly, I can try to get my points and be safe. But I frankly like to be aggressive with them. I like playing them as a melee army. Uh, I don't like staying in my deployments on the whole game. I like starting there, staying there for one turn, and then sprinting forward with Vol's moving castle to uh, go try and kill some people on their home objectives. So the, the sisters list you brought is what I would consider like a pretty typical Bloody Rose army, but do you want to just go through it top to bottom and, and kind of explain any weird choices you may have made or any John Lennon picks? <laughs> Absolutely. So this is a simple Bloody Rose battalion. Uh, we start off with Morvan Vol, a cannonist that is kitted all out, so she has Warded Amper for fight last, as well as some good relics and warlord traits. Uh, then I've got two units of Battle Sisters, a unit of Novitiates. My elites are three units of Apentia, going 8-8-5, a Repentia Superior, a Dogmata, who's like my chaplain, a Hospitaller, and then in Fast Attacks I've got a unit of Seraphim, two squads of Zephyrim, 1-6-1-9. Then Heavy Supports is two units of 10 Retributors, the Castigator, and finally a Rhino. And of course, those 10 rets are kitted out. Uh, if I were to say that any one slot was one that's me being a little snowflakey, it's definitely heavy supports. That's the one that I see differ from other sisters list the most. Everyone takes Repentia, everyone takes Morvenval, everyone takes Zephyrim. It's pretty obvious every Bloody Rose player is going to take that. I can't take credit for the idea. But what I don't see very often are the 10 strong units of Retributors. And she's getting a little more popular, but I still don't see the Castigator that often. Cassie the Castigator. What, what even is that? <laughs> so, yeah, Castigator, I saw it multiple variants. Did you really, Paul? Well, Castigator's catching on. Yeah, it's, it's catching on. I'm very proud of her. So uh, the way that I look at the type support slot is that I'm trying to get more shooting and more reliable long-term shooting into a list. Um, a lot of melee armies, I find, uh, just bring like one gun that's going to step out one time and fire, and that's all they think they need as like a threat. I like taking, investing in a little bit less Zephyrm, a little less Repentia than some armies, but in, and, and no Celestine as well, and then I invest all those points in my heavy support slot. So the Castigator is a wonderful little Predator. It's, it's literally just a Predator battle tank, but somehow it's so bad that it's good. It's got three heavy bolters and a 4d3 shot autocannon, and it's very cheap. It's 135 points, and that puts out on average 17 AP1 damage, two shots, strength five or seven, just downfield at 36 and 48 inch range. And in a melee army with a lot of short range shooting and multi melters and hand flamers and bolters and pistols, uh, having a gun that can go 36 inches, even 48 on the top, uh, the turret gun, is very valuable because it lets me interact a little bit before my army gets close, and it makes sure that my opponent can't just stand. 31 inches away from me in the open, they have to actually respect that there are some guns there. 
Yeah. I, I actually had the pleasure of playing against a Castigator, and I was like, this thing's really annoying. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it really is. It's very solid for the points. I, I love her. You mentioned yeah, also 10 strong yeah. Retributors. What's that about? So for me, it's about investing in the unit to make sure that I get to use them multiple times. So, you know, people often treat Retributors as like a fire and forget unit. You, you have more of involved buff them, and you reroll everything. Then they step out from behind a wall, they shoot, they pop their cherub, and then the five Battle Sister squad just gets evaporated and they just die. I like taking 10 so that I can do some interesting tricks with casualty pulling and just durability. Uh, between Light Cover and Armor Contempt, a Retributor in cover is effectively a one-up save. And with 10 models, it, it's very difficult for people to actually kill it. So a lot of armies, especially melee armies that just take a little bit of shooting, they can't actually kill the whole unit in one go. So in a melee mirror, the Retributors actually give me a huge advantage because if they don't have strong enough shooting to clear out six Bolter Girls before they get to the Meltas, then I get to use the Retributors aggressively without really fear of losing them. And if my opponent does have enough shooting to chip the unit down, what I've found is that I can put four multi-Meltas in line of sight and six girls add line of sight, like hugging a wall on the other side. And I go out and I shoot. And again, if my opponent can't kill the entire unit in one activation, which would involve them having like a really strong unit, like a Night Crusader, then I can just kind of pull the girls in line of sight, the Meltas, and I'll have the both the girls behind it. That means I won't lose the unit. And normally you'd think that the Retributors are kind of useless if you lose all of your Meltas, because that's why the unit's there. But because I have the Hospitaler, I can heal D3 multi-Meltas back. D3, not just one. D3, not one. So I can, if you kill all four girls in line of sight, I'm out of multi-Meltas. I've, I've stood out, I popped one cherub. So then I hold still, I don't even bother moving the unit, and then I heal D3 models. And the models that I heal stand back up in line of sight. And now they're shooting without a heavy penalty. And they ignore cover, so you don't get the benefit from forest or dense cover. Which means that this squad that already got depleted and would have been dead in any other army is now putting out D3 more multi-meltas, so two to six shots. But I have a second cherub as well, so it's going to actually be four to eight shots. And because I did not have to move to shoot them, I just healed models, they didn't move. They're actually hitting on threes, you're rolling ones usually, which is about as accurate as fours, re-rolling everything, which would be the unit without a, a, with more than Falls buff. So they end up getting multiple turns of use out of them. And in some cases, people just can't kill it all at once, and I just don't even bother pulling them up because I just sit there being tough. That situation you're describing did actually happen to me a couple times. That's not a theoretical situation. You can like reliably p- pull that maneuver during games. Definitely. I also recall Mike Walsh that we had on for talking about his specific sisters list. I believe he won. I don't remember what tournament it was, but he won a tournament a few months back, and we had him on the show, and he talked in detail about a list very similar to John's, so you can check that out on our previous episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mike's a good friend of mine. We, uh, we actually talked about that list in advance, so definitely some shared ideas between us. Wonderful, wonderful. John, I had one more question for you. There's a lot of stuff going on outside the team event, and everyone knows team events are the most fun way to 40K, play 40K. You're playing with your friends. Even if you lose, you're not out. You're playing for the margin of your loss. Even if you lose, your team can still go on to win, and uh, it's just it's a much more camaraderie-based way to play 40K because it's a team. There's also all the extracurricular activities that go on at these events. The, the dinner's out, the car ride's there, um, Brad Chester... That's enough of that. Um, what was your favorite moment of the event? Oh, man. Nick's trying to get me on the extracurriculars. Honestly, my favorite moment of the event may have actually been the fact that um, uh, the hotel we were staying at had a hot tub. So, you know, after a long day of Warhammer, three rounds, you know, just standing around a convention center, rolling dice, uh, it was really fun to just, you know, again, the best part is that you're going with your teammates, with your friends, is uh, just hanging out in a hot tub with my friends after. 
That's pretty awesome. I got to teach y'all to actually have fun at these things. <laughs> Paul, you don't have to teach me. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That's actually one of the best things is, is looking at and, and finding these things you don't necessarily get to do all the time and taking advantage of it. And that is that's, that's an excuse, another excuse to get out to these things. I do love that I've now asked the question to, to Richard, then Jack, and now you, John. All three of you have given wildly different answers. So, you know, that's always fun. Teach their own at a 40K event. <laughs> Hey, there's a lot of ways to enjoy 40k. That's for sure. So, John, looking back, uh, you know, knowing what you know about the event, uh, you know, obviously success at the event. But would you make any changes to your list based on what you actually encountered there if you had to do it all over again? Uh, you know, honestly, I don't think that I would. the The only thing that I want to consider is cutting some models to add a second rhino, and that's just because I'm I'm seeing these people run around with uh, multiple katan, and I don't I don't really like that. And I think I want rhinos for that. So I don't think I would change anything yet, but if I ever get that Necron game, uh, that would be the first thing I'd look at to see if that's necessary. So I know you have been a sisters aficionado for some time now, claiming multiple GT wins and super major wins with them, but you're not playing them for the upcoming WTC tournament, the World Team Championship. We had had you play them here at the American teams, but over there, uh, I believe you, Richard, and Jack are all playing different factions. So what are you running and, and why is it different? Yeah, absolutely. So, um... You know, uh, why I'm running something different, uh, quite simply, we have multiple great Sisters players. Uh, uh, Brandon's going to be playing Sisters, a, a wonderful, accomplished player who's won the ITC and LVO before. So Brandon Grant. Brandon Grant, of course. Uh, so, you know, he can have Sisters, no problem. Uh, what I'm going to be playing is Adeptus Custodes. Uh, you know what? I I love playing Power Armor, and the only thing better than Power Armor is Oramite Armor. I was going to say better Power Armor. It's better Power Armor. <laughs> Comes to the Ninvuln built-in and Toughness 5. You know, those Toughness 3 girls are fun, but uh, I think it's even better when the Bolters win me on 5s, not 3s. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's very exciting. So you can follow along with WTC stuff over as we get closer to that event. That's in like 2-3 weeks. We'll be doing tons of coverage um, of our not only Art of Wars Team America going, but also Art of War will be present on Canada, UK, and Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, super excited to see how all the coaches do this year. That's very cool. Well, that is the the end of part one here. You know, please join us if you can in part two. That's for subscribers only. If you're just listening to this part, we appreciate you tuning in all the way to the end. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Leave us some five star reviews. That's a that's a way to to interact with the show that other people may find us and come uh, listen in on part one here uh, along with this journey. Uh, Nick, it's been a pleasure. John, uh, thank you and the rest of the team for coming and sharing your insights. All right, thank you for having me. Thanks so much, Paul. We'll catch y'all next week. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. TheArtOfWar40K.com.